Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. We sing joyfully that God will come and judge the earth with equity. It's also a sobering note of conviction. And so we come before the Lord and confess our sins to him as well. Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, hear God's word. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Thus far the reading of God's word. We just read from Psalm 31 in the opening litany, to be of good courage, God will strengthen your heart. Courage is a French word that literally means strong heart. And all of us have weak moments, but sometimes staying discouraged and despondent is a choice and a moral fault. We just refuse to find our hope and strength in the Lord. So let's confess our own sins before Almighty God this morning as we consider this. Oh, come, let us worship. We'll turn back to Nehemiah one last time. This will be the last message in this series. Look at the last chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. Let me pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for providing us with revelation, revealing yourself to us, showing yourself. For Lord, without that, we are lost. Lord, we trust, we claim this to be true. We need Uh, your word more than we need daily bread. We need your spirit in and amongst us to help us to understand and to accept this word. Help us, Heavenly Father, as we once again receive uh, wisdom uh, from your uh, mouth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Nehemiah 13, hear God's infallible word. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. 
And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled, each to his own field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. 
Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we come here to the end of the story, and I got thinking of the end of stories in the Bible, and we need to remember, recall that uh, Bible story endings are quite different than story endings today. Today, we're kind of trained in uh, story endings to expect some kind of happily ever after something. Uh, The Bible doesn't always do that. We get that, of course, at the very end of Revelation. We have the new heavens and the new earth come down. The the, uh, redemptive history has uh, a happy ending with a marriage between Christ and the church. But at the end of each book of the Bible, it's often quite different. Just give you two examples a second really quick. Uh, One is the book of Judges. Judges ends in quite a travesty, right? Well, this corruption of Israel uh, where they are... um, They're uh, giving uh, refuge to great wickedness, and it results in a civil war. It results in a whole tribe uh, without uh, any uh, sons, any any daughters uh, to marry. So Judges ends very strangely uh, with that same refrain that it has throughout the whole book. In that day, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the end of the book. Sometimes Bible story, Bible books uh, don't have the kind of happy ending that we think is needed. Jonah's the second example I'd have for you. Remember how Jonah ends? Right? Jonah, we, we think always of, of the fish, and Jonah comes out and he preaches to Nineveh that they repent. It's a, it's a great, great thing. But Jonah himself, chapter 4, the end of that book, Jonah hates it. He doesn't like the fact that the Ninevites have repented. He wanted God to judge and kill them. And at the end, God ends the book of Jonah with a question. He says to Jonah, shouldn't I have pity on these people? There's, there's so many women and children and cattle. And that's the end of the book. It ends with a question. Uh, the scriptures, I think, often do that. Uh, to put it to us, what are we going to do? What would you do if you were in Jonah's position? Which way would you go? If you were an Israelite in Judah in the the days of the judges, what would you do? The same question can be put here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is uh, continuing to uh, call for ongoing reform, but uh, when you read between the lines, you realize not everybody in Israel is on the same page with Nehemiah, even at the end of the book. He's doing the right thing all along. We can see that. But there's plenty in Israel who are uh, unfaithful, And the question is, what are we going to do in that situation? So what we have here is after an extended absence, Nehemiah returns and reforms Israel again. You have to start in verse 6 to get the idea. Uh, While this was taking place, Nehemiah says, he was not in Jerusalem. So he takes a a leave of absence to go back, quote-unquote, home, right? The the king of uh, Persia has given him leave to go to Jerusalem for a time, but he's got to come back to his normal day job. And so he does that. But then he asks to, come, to go back to Jerusalem again. So in the interim, when he's gone, uh, the whole thing seems to kind of fall apart. 
And Nehemiah has to pick up and he has to reform once again. So let's look at some of those. We'll just walk through this quickly and then a few points of application at the end. Uh, first, we have the first nine verses where we'll see uh, separation from religious compromise. Separation from religious compromise. Uh, so the, the first three verses there, you see no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly. This was highly relevant to them because the Ammonites and the Moabites were all uh, surrounding them at the time and intermixing with them. And so it was a, it was a high, highly relevant uh, thing for them. And so they put them out of the assembly. They separated from Israel those of foreign descent. Verse 3. Now I'm going to say something that may be controversial that you may disagree with. I believe that this is a law in the book of Moses that no longer applies. This is part of the ritual law that God gave temple ordinances. And part of that was no Moabite or Ammonite can go into the temple. Well, the temple has been removed. God brings Samaritans into the faith. I think that there's a, a difference here, a contrast between old and new covenant. There is no Moabite or Ammonite ethnically that we can identify anymore. And if there were, the, this law, ritual law, does not apply. That's what I would say. Uh, one, uh, when I went to uh, Israel and Turkey uh, to, to tour there, on the way home, I sat on a plane next to a Christian from Nazareth. It was quite an experience, and in very broken English, tried to get to know her. It turns out she was Arab. And, and it opened my eyes a great deal. Here you have a Christian, Arab, in Nazareth, whose faith seemed to me to be perfectly genuine. And it really opened my eyes. I don't think uh, what's going on here is racial or ethnic. The point is, in these first five verses or so, that God's children did not know God's ways. And they weren't learning them. They're learning another worldview. That's the problem. Here. That's the problem with Tobiah in the sanctuary. He's evicted. Nehemiah literally throws his furniture out of his rooms that he had. It reminds me of Jesus cleansing the temple, right? Same kind of thing. But if you remember why Jesus cleansed the temple, it was because the, the money changers were crowding out the, the Gentiles in the Gentile court. And Jesus quotes scripture and says, zeal for your house consumes me. The whole point of that was, get these things out of here so that the Gentiles can worship the true God. And that's something that we need to keep in mind as we read through this. So, uh, Tobiah, remember, is an Ammonite. He's one of those um, leaders uh, of another nation, another religion. It would, like I've said before, it would be like giving uh, the local imam uh, part of our church budget to take care of or, or give him uh, an office in the church. That's what they're doing here. Be out, of, out of some kind of deference for his political clout, I would say. So, separation religiously is what's sought here. Stop with the syncretism. And when I watched through the coronation yesterday, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I noted that a lot of the commentary was all raving about how non-Christian faiths are going to be included in the ceremony of the coronation. There's a strong push today to bring Tobias 
back into the sanctuary. And we have to note that and watch out for that. So that's the first point here. There's separation from religious compromise. The next is verses 10 through 13, the tithing reform. I found out, verse 10, that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. Uh, Now, uh, that causes the Levites to go fend for themselves. They've got some uh, common land back in their cities that they uh, are able to scratch a living out of, uh, so they need to do that. Now, it seems that the fault here seems to be first with the priests who were keeping what was tithed, right? They're not distributing it to the Levites. That, again, makes you think of the cleansing of the temple in Jesus' day because that's what was going on. The priests were were hoarding uh, in a greedy way and overcharging the people and, and, and building up their own coffers and not giving to those who were in need. So there's, there's that part of it. But also verse 12, Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I don't know how, how it is in your understanding. I know that growing up in the Dutch Reformed uh, world, uh, there was always a, quite a bit of talk. Whenever there was some kind of church criticism, uh, the tithe would often come up rather quickly. It's like, well, the tithe doesn't have to happen either if the church is going to do that. There was always this kind of a tit-for-tat kind of thing. And maybe that's partly what's going on here, is the, the common man is seeing that the priests are, are abusing their authority, and so the common man is giving less to the, to the temple because of it. And that's a, a common thing that often happens. We don't want to give to some corrupt uh, outfit, so we give less. So Nehemiah gets that reformed, and then because he reforms that, all Judah brings the tithe again. So that's a part of what's going on here, too. There's a faithful ordering here that Nehemiah reestablishes. He names some of the reliable men, right? He, uh, they, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. There might be a New Testament connection here. I didn't study this, but just in passing, uh, something, there might be a connection to Acts chapter 6 as well, where you have the distribution to the, the widows and to the, the Greek Christians that's, that's being uh, hindered. And that was probably a, a, a racial issue as well. But uh, there's maybe a connection there. You've, you've got to they establish uh, deacons when that happens to give them authority to make sure the distributions happen how they should. So just like in Acts 6 that happens, so here Nehemiah does the same. Verse 14, you get the first, remember me. I think there's three of these, maybe, maybe four. Uh, so this refrain in this last chapter where Nehemiah just cuts into the narrative, his account, and he just offers up this short prayer to God. Remember me, O my God. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Three short little prayers that come here in this chapter. We'll consider that in a moment. So that's the second section, the tithing reform. The next one is the Sabbath reform, verses 15 to 22. Uh, So here you have uh, people in Judah treading wine presses, bringing in heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys, all all their harvest, and they bring it to the city to sell, which was a common uh, means of employment and uh, profit for everyone. But they were doing this on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath. Now, I'll, so this is time to talk Sabbath a little bit here. And I'll leave aside the whole discussion that we've had before sometimes of eating out on Sundays, because there's no description of that here, right? But what you do have is doing your usual employment, selling your food in the market, 
what's interesting is verse 18, I think. Uh, here's Nehemiah pleading with the people to not do this. Didn't your fathers act in this way? And didn't our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? What he's saying there is, this is why we, we went into exile in the first place. Because we didn't keep the Sabbath. Which is something we don't often think about or realize. Uh, the biblical proof for that is in Second Chronicles 36 and Jeremiah 29. Where uh, God says that Israel will be in exile for 70 years. Because for 490 years, 70 times 7, notice... They did not give the land its Sabbath rest. So God's going to kick them out of the land for 70 years because there were 70 Sabbath rests for the land that Israel never gave the land. It's a very interesting uh, principle of judgment. God's judgment is fitting. If you're not going to give the land rest, then I'm going to give the land rest from you. That's what God says. That's what he does. If you aren't generous and kind with what God gives you, maybe he'll take it away. And, whatever, and that applies to anything in your life. Your time? Are you generous with your time? Your money? Are you kind to others with your money? Your children? Are you generous and kind to your children? Your church? Now, beware the logical fallacy there. You can, you can turn this around and come to the wrong conclusions, right? If God does take some things away from you, that doesn't mean it's always your fault. But the emphasis here is on the Sabbath breaking. You're just back from exile, from God punishing you for syncretism and for not keeping the Sabbath. And here you are, letting Ammonites and Moabites into the temple and not keeping the Sabbath. You're doing exactly what God just punished us for. That principle is an important one for you parents of little ones to keep in mind. Uh, you'll have this sometimes. that You discipline a child, and five minutes later, they're doing the same thing. That doesn't mean you did it wrong, although you, maybe you did. You want to think about that. But it's their nature. It's our nature to fall right back into the sin that we were just punished for. The proverb says, the dog returns to its vomit. That's a pungent picture, if ever there was one. Or maybe you've seen the video online of the farmer that gets the sheep out of the ditch, and then the sheep kind of bounds out and takes a few jumps and falls right back into the ditch again. It's like, that's my life in the Lord right there, yeah. That, that's, it's in our nature. That's what we do. And so we need shepherds, we need friends to come alongside us and say, hey, you just got out of the ditch. Don't fall back in. So here in verse 19, Nehemiah stops it by force. He, he's in charge of the city, and he says to them, I commanded that the doors should be shut. Gave orders that it not be opened. Stationed servants at the gates, nobody's coming in. He warns them, tells them what's going on, why. We're not doing this is what Nehemiah says. This, I think, is a good example of rightful use of authority. And you can apply that to the state or the home or the church, too. You need, we need leaders who will say, we're not doing this. And that's what Nehemiah does. 
Rise up, O men of God. We've been singing that throughout this sermon series. This is part of why. Nehemiah was one of these. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. And each of us individually, we need to say this to ourselves. I'm not doing this. I'm not giving in to this bad habit anymore. So Nehemiah is reforming the city. Uh, he's reforming it according to the word of God. Now, if you go back to Nehemiah, if you think about this whole Sabbath issue, it's true we should not make every sin into a crime. But we should work for righteousness in the public square. And Nehemiah is doing that. That whenever you think about Sabbath, I always, I, I, I think back, I've heard of this, it's before my time, but they tell me that 50 years ago in the small towns where I grew up, that the town would take turns having one grocery store and one doctor office stay open on Sunday. And all the rest would be closed. But they'd make sure there was one open, just in case somebody there was an urgent need for a pharmacy or for medicine or for food, and you could get it. But the rest closed, like Nehemiah closed the gate to honor the Lord's Day. So Sabbath keeping, there's something for us to consider there. Again, verse 22, the next refrain, Remember this also in my favor. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then the last uh, point here of what Nehemiah is doing, and this goes back to the religious syncretism again. Verse 23, Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. See, there's a lot of this that has gone on. Half their children speak the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, the language of their own people. So here again, the problem isn't uh, that they're not pursuing a, a cultural purity as much as they should be. The problem here isn't interracial marriage per se. It's interfaith marriage. Back then, that was pretty much the same thing. But today, it is not. If those children could not speak or read Hebrew, if they were only taught the language of Ashdod, they couldn't read the Bible. They, didn't, they weren't being taught God's word. That's the issue here. So it, it's that they're being raised in the faith of Ashdod, not Israel. Israel. And today, that isn't always so clear. What is the faith of America? Or if you want to get a little punchy, what is the faith of white America? What is the faith of black America? Can you really just say what it is? I don't think you can, although uh, many in the media try to uh, paint one picture for us of that. I like to use this example sometimes. If, if one of my children happened to uh, marry a grandchild of Clarence Thomas, I would be extremely pleased. <laughs> and that, that kind of puts the issue where I think it needs to be. So uh, Nehemiah here again is contending, though, saying, what are you doing raising children? You're not teaching them the ways of the Lord. They don't even know how to read the Bible. They don't even know how to hear the Bible. Take them to church and they can't understand a thing that's going on. And you're fine with that? Nehemiah, verse 25, makes them promise not to allow interfaith marriages anymore. The language is quite strong. I confronted them, I cursed them, beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take oath in the name of God 
you shall not give your daughters to their sons. This is fascinating. I thought about this for quite a while this week. Uh, I think there's a place in the family, in the church, and in the state for leaders to ask for promises from their people. That's what Nehemiah says here. I made them take oaths to not do this. Right? We see that in the, in the family in Numbers 30. Uh, there, there's a little known uh, passage, principle, that fathers can override promises that their family members make. Wife or sons, daughters take a spiritual vow, say, I'm going to do this. Well, if the father hears about that and disagrees, the father can say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Right? It's the same kind of principle. We're going to do this instead of that. that there's there's uh, family authority to do that. You see the same thing in 2 Samuel in the state. Uh, when David is uh, made king, he calls for his people to serve God. It's rather interesting to contrast that with the coronation yesterday. They made Charles. I, I listened, I watched most of it. I, get, I didn't get through all of it. But I noticed at the beginning, they made King Charles take oaths to maintain the Protestant Reformed faith before he was crowned. Now, I think, I'm pretty sure that if the whole thing were up to him, he wouldn't do that. But they made him do it because that's the tradition. That's the nation. It's a fascinating dynamic. Uh, our, our country, our, our state, we can have immigrants take citizenship oaths. The country makes that happen. Again, the principle here is that the leadership can ask for promises from their people. In the church in Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13 calls us to obey our leaders in the church. And they may ask us to take membership vows, for example. Though they should not require anything beyond what scripture does. So there are things that, that, that um, leaders in the church, the state, the family, can ask of their people, like Nehemiah is doing here. I made them take oaths not to marry outside the faith, is essentially what he's saying. And again, that's so clear. You don't want to assert a lot of authority on unclear things. I want to be careful about that. But where it's clear, you want to have some real authority call for the right thing. That's what Nehemiah does. Verse 26 and 27, he preaches a little sermon here, pointing to Solomon. This is interesting. Solomon loved his foreign women, and he let them lead him to worship other gods. And Nehemiah says, what, do you think you're better than Solomon? That you can mess around with these women and stay true to Yahweh? He couldn't. He didn't. What do you... What do you What's the proverb? You think you can scoop ashes into your lap and not get burned? Right? It's, you can't do that. And verse 28, finally, the interesting last vignette. One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest. So this is a grandson of the high priest. Right? He's the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Remember, he's a Samaritan. So there you have an interfaith marriage right in the high priest's family. That's how deep and ingrained this problem was. Just to be a little provocative, I thought I'd name a couple of names. You know, think of um, grandson of the high priest. What, what would that be in our culture? I'm not exactly sure. There's not one high priest in our country necessarily, right? But I think of people like Hunter Biden, 
uh, I don't know if you know the name Abraham Piper. There are all kinds of children, uh, family members of prominent, well-known leaders in our church and state who have kind of gone off the rails. And what does Nehemiah do? Verse 28, I chased him from me. I think another version says, I drove him away. He doesn't want any dealings with him at all. Remember me, verse 29. Actually, in verse 29, it's remember them. They have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Well, the, the last thing in verse 30 is that Nehemiah simply tells everybody, uh, gets, gets people doing what they're supposed to be doing. Establish the duties of the priests and Levites. Make the expectations clear. I thought this morning, maybe Nehemiah was one of those uh, kind of businessmen who just really knows how to write a job description well. Because that's kind of what he's doing. This is your job. Do your job. And he, and he sees how that all fits together and how all the job descriptions go together. He's getting that from the word, of course. Well, that takes us through verse by verse. I just wanted to uh, apply this in four different ways this morning, and then we'll quit. Uh, first, so four basic points. The first one is that we need zeal to reform. I want to point out the zeal of Nehemiah. It's all over this chapter, and it's quite something. Verse 8 is the first one. Verse 8, I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. That, wow. That, again, that makes you think of Jesus making the whip and then driving the money changers out. Right? He physically throws Tobiah's stuff out. Verse 11 is another one. I confronted the officials. Why is the house of God forsaken? Verse 15 is another one. I warned them, those who were bringing in uh, their wares to sell. I warned them on that day. Verse 19, he commands the city gates to be closed. Verse 25 is the climax of all this. I confront them, I cursed them, I beat some of them, I pulled out their hair. There's a, a favorite life verse if you need a life verse someday. Wow. Makes them take an oath. You see the zeal of Nehemiah going on here. He's, he's making sure that God's people do what they're supposed to be doing. And saying, if, the, if they're not, get in their face. What are you, why aren't you doing this? Chasing an elite family member away from him. Verse 28. We need zeal to reform sometimes. This was why we read from Matthew 18. What does Jesus say in the sermon? Uh, it's not in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 18. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's what we call hyperbole. Okay? And it's something to keep in mind. It, there's a lot of things in Jesus' teachings that are not meant to be taken literally. And that, that's kind of shocking to hear. What? What do you, what do you mean? By literally, I mean when Jesus says, I am the door, he doesn't mean he's a door. When he says, this is my body, he doesn't mean this is physically my body. There's an awful lot of metaphor in Jesus' teaching. And hyperbole is one kind of that. Jesus doesn't want you literally to cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. He wants you to stop the sin. And it's a, it's a, a literary device to say, this is so important. This is so, so important. Stop the sin or you're going to wind up in the hell of fire, is what Jesus is saying. So uh, 
very important, and, and that kind of zeal is what we need to reform our lives. That kind of zeal to, 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 to get in the face of someone else or let someone else get in our face and, and uh, metaphorically to cut off our hand uh, to stop the sin. We need zeal to reform. That's the first thing. Second, we need people in our life close to us who keep us on the straight and narrow. We need people in our lives close to us. And we've seen the lists throughout Nehemiah. So many names. So many faithful people among God's people. And we need them in our lives to stay on the straight and narrow. Not just the online teachers, but people who see you every week and know you, who, who can challenge you. I've had Hebrews 10, 24 in my head a lot for some reason. I'm not sure why. That famous verse about don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But the first phrase before that, before the everybody go to church, the, the reason why is stir up one another to love and good works. That's why you're supposed to go to church. So if you just go to church and if you arrive 30 seconds before the service starts and you leave 30 seconds after it ends, you really haven't kept the spirit of the passage. Stir up one another to love and good works. We need people in our lives, fellowshipping with people, creating relationships that, who will keep us on the straight and narrow. Where I'm getting this is from the, the Nehemiah's absence, right? When Nehemiah left, the reforms all started deteriorating. And he, he comes back and finds, man, everything I was working for, it's, it's like weeds grew up in the garden all over again, right? Uh, my kids sometimes like to call me depravity man because I'm always emphasizing the depravity of, uh, of, of mankind. That's what happens. When we're left to ourselves, we'll stray. And we need to keep coming back to church, keep coming back to the word day by day, uh, have parents come to us and help us in how we're living Wives need husbands. Husbands need wives. Uh, younger people, we, we need friends and mentors that you can bounce ideas off of. We need one another, just as Israel needed Nehemiah here. That's the second thing. So we need zeal to reform. We need people. Third, reform is needed in every part of your life. And if you survey the, the chapter again, you see this. How you worship in the first three verses. Who you let into your inmost life into that temple chamber of your life? Are you letting Tobias in there? How you use your money, the whole tithe idea. How you spend your time, especially on the Lord's Day. And then towards the end, the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, etc. Well, who are you going to court? Who are you going to marry? How are you going to raise your children? What are you going to do when you see something out there in the world that looks great? Like Samson saw uh, th those uh, women of the Canaanites. He said, get me for her. Or, uh, excuse me, get her for me. That was Samson's approach, right? We need to be the opposite of that. So if we see something attractive out there in the world, is that something God wants for me? Or do I not care about that because it just looks great and it feels great? That's reform needed in our lives. These are all outward actions, notice. And I'd point to scripture that also points us to the heart. Uh, circumcise your heart, O Israel, not just your physical actions. Our desires need reforming. It isn't that we're good people who slip up now and then. 
The sinful nature sticks with us. We want the wrong things. And we've got to fight against that all of our lives. Our, our thoughts are messed up. This was part of the whole Reformation point, right? We aren't thinking God's thoughts after him unless we're guided by his word and spirit. So reform is needed in every part of your life. And that's what this chapter points us to as well. Ongoing reform. If we turn to Philippians 3, I had us read part of that uh, because of this. Uh, Paul himself it comes out right out at one point here and says, I haven't attained all this yet. I am still working on this. And that's important. It's important for us to remember that ongoing reform is needed in my life. We often get to thinking, I've arrived. We often get to thinking, because I'm at this church now, or because I'm paedo-baptist now, or because I'm reformed now, fill in your adjective, because I'm post-mill now, whatever one it is, because I'm that now, I've arrived. It's not the case. God will continue to call for reform in your life. At the end of the book of Nehemiah, he's doing all the right things. But notice that in the nation of Israel, the reform is not complete. Semper reformanda, the Latin phrase from the Reformation. There's a, semper reformanda, it means always reforming. It's the second half of the catchphrase. The first half is reformed, right? An action that's been done. We are reformed. We think this way. We think this about the sovereignty and election of God, etc. That's all good, but we also need to be always reforming. That doesn't mean our doctrine is constantly changing. That means our lives are always trying to play catch-up to what we believe to be true. Reformed and always reforming. It's almost the opposite of what you hear sometimes out in the evangelical world, the, the catchphrase, let go and let God. Right? There, there's, a, there's an understanding out there that, that to defend the grace of God... We need to not strive so hard to be godly, because that wouldn't be grace. That'd be us trying. Well, that's, that's a false dichotomy, right? The grace of God will spur you on to try harder. <laughs> that's the way things are supposed to go. Uh, strive for a new obedience, as the, the confession says. Or Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation. This is not, all, this is not at odds with salvation by grace. And that's important to remember. Salvation is of, of Christ alone. Reread the Heidelberg Catechism this afternoon that's, that we read today. It's so good on that point. It's, it's by faith alone. And even that faith isn't what we look to to say, ah, that's why God loves me. No. Neither one. It's because God wanted to love you. It's because he chose to. And, and he gave you all of this. Salvation by grace. And because of that, we seek to reform our lives. Remember me, Nehemiah says, at least three times. It's like he's saying, I'm trying to do the right thing here, God. And remember how I said, too, Nehemiah is, is kind of the root, the beginning of the Pharisee uh, mentality. And remember, it was that Pharisee mentality that Jesus uh, uh, critiqued when he said, two men went up to the temple to pray. And one said... Lord, I tithe and nobody else tithes. 
I, I, do, I fast, and I don't see anybody else fasting. And, and, and he's, he's looking to God to justify him on that basis. And it's important to j- distinguish that from what Nehemiah is doing here. Nehemiah is not being a Pharisee of that type, saying, Lord, love me and accept me because I'm doing all of these reforms. No, we, we trust God to favor us because of Jesus and because God wants to. And we trust that because he's doing that, he'll give us the will to reform and seek to do the right thing. Are you going to reform? That's the question that we come back to at the end of the book. It's like Jonah. Are you going to sit there under the plant and have a self-pity party? Or are you going to go to Nineveh and celebrate the grace of God? There's another story, I'll close with this, that that does the same thing. It's a wonderful one. You, You all know it. It's the parable of the prodigal son. Remember how the prodigal son ends? They're having the party for the younger son who's come back. And the elder son comes in from the field and he realizes what's going on and he's just shocked and he condemns his father. How could you do this? All this waste and you're just endorsing it. That's his basic take. And the story ends with the father pleading with the elder brother. Saying, you've you've been my favored son all this time. Come back in. My son who was lost is now found. Rejoice with me. And that's the end of the story. It's great Jewish teaching technique. The whole point is, what are you going to do? Are you going to stand outside and refuse to go into the party? Because that's where the story leaves the elder brother. Still outside. Convicted by the father. What should I do? Let's go in to a... (laughs) I didn't even have this in my notes. Let's go into our father's house and sit down at the table and celebrate his grace together. Grace given not just to you, but to those around you who once were lost but now they're found. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace. You are a God of compassion, of mercy. We also see in this passage you are a God who brings conviction and judgment on your people. You are purifying a people for yourself. Help us to see that purpose of yours, to work uh, towards it, work with you, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord, for uh, prodding us not only towards moral purity, but also towards rejoicing in uh, your grace shown towards others. Help us to rejoice when another lost one is found. We lift up all these prayers to you, thanking you for sending us your son, Jesus. We pray as 
refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. There's no place like the dinner table for receiving and reshaping. As our bodies physically receive nourishment, reshaping our blood, our cells, our body, we are reshaped in our identity as part of the family of God. We come from our individual daily lives, things we cling to, things we obsess about, that we think about ourselves, are shaken loose, and we cling to better things instead, things that the family uh, holds uh, up, that the church values. We receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, but our lives now are not yet fit for that kingdom, so let them be shaken loose. Reform your life. God has saved you, favored you, to offer him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So come, for all things are now ready. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.